Uh, Exodus chapter 33, and we're going to look at that together. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for this evening, this opportunity. Thank you for everyone that is here, excited about uh, the chance to look at this passage and your word. And so, God, help us. Every time we open your word, you, you're molding us and you're shaping us. You're teaching us. You're, you're guiding us, Father. So may, may tonight be no different. May we gather together around your word and hear it proclaimed and grow Grow closer to you, grow in our love for you, grow in our love for each other, grow in our, our hatred, even as we look at this, our hatred of sin. God, we, we thank you that not only do you tell us of your great love, but you warn us of the consequences of disobedience. And so God, tonight, may, may we look to the one who has saved us and redeemed us and has delivered us from the bondage of sin, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and may we follow after him. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, really, and I'll be honest, as we look at Exodus 33, Exodus 34 is a, it's an important chapter, and then it just kind of rushes. I told you guys that my, my goal would be as we get to the end of May, May, uh, I don't know what the date is, but the end of May is our last Sunday together. Maybe the first Wednesday in, oh, my last Wednesday, maybe the first Wednesday in June. I can't remember the dates, but right up until VBS, we'll be meeting together and our desire will be to get through the end of Exodus. And this, I don't think it's going to be hard because after you get through chapter 34, you really kind of rush to the end because it's just becoming faithful to fulfill what God told Moses to do when he was on the mountain, building all of those things he, he is to build and that kind of stuff. But 33 and 34 are really, really important passages um, in the history of Israel. And so y'all remember, uh, I said 33, I meant the end of 32. Did I say 33 at the beginning? Okay, we're going back, way back to 32. And we didn't finish 32. I got carried away last week and started preaching a little bit. And that always takes more time than do what I'm doing. So we're, we're going to get to 32. But 32, 33, and 34 are important passages. That's what we're looking at. And so uh, we'll, we'll spend the next week or so here and looking at this together. And if you remember where we're at, Moses has been on the mountain hearing from God all the instructions. Uh, just to, to remind you again, God has redeemed his people so he can be with his people. They are his people. He's making himself known. And so how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Exodus is all of that. He gives them the government by which they are to live, the laws by which they are to live, and that's the Ten Commandments. Then he gives them those case laws on what it means to, to live out loving one another. Here's how that looks in situations and, and that case laws they are there. And then he goes and he takes Moses on up into the mountain and and. He shares with Moses all that it needs to be done for the priesthood. What are they to wear? How are they to be consecrated? How do they offer up sacrifices? How does that come? And, and he tells them also, like, here's how you are to build me a house. Here's what you are to do. So he tells him what the tent looks like and how he's supposed to set it up and what the furniture is supposed to be because he's building this tent, this tabernacle, and it is God's dwelling place with his people. And so he's explaining to him every detail of it. Here's how this holy God dwells with these unholy people. This is how it's going to work. 
And so you see the detail of it. And while he is on the mountain, remember, he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. While he's up there, the people on the ground become restless, right? That's what we talked about last week. They became restless because they think Moses has gone in and he's not coming back. We need to do something. And so they go in chapter 30, 32. They take off all their gold. They give it to Aaron. Aaron makes a cow, a calf, and he brings it out made out of gold. And they say, here is your God, even using the language of Yahweh. Here is Yahweh. And in that, they're just breaking all these commandments of God and they're setting up idolatry. Remember what I said last week. There's some people who are looking for a religion that makes no demands or offers no rewards. A religion that, that dazzles, a religion that, that brings up some sort of sense of, of spectacular in front of them, but one that doesn't make any demands on them. And if they're looking for that, you can find somebody to do that for you. And that's what they do when they go to Aaron. He gives them. Well, remember, the Lord says to Moses, it's time for you to go down there because your people, look what your people have done, because uh, they're not God's people if they're disobeying him. Look what your people have done. And he sends Moses back down. He says, the Lord says, I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to end them, right? They're done. Moses intercedes. That's what we talked about last week. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, calling upon God's faithfulness, calling upon God's grace, calling upon God's promises. And God relents, as it says, and says, okay. And so Moses goes down after he's already pleaded with God not to destroy them all. Now Moses goes down the mountain and he's angry. Rightfully so. In fact, what does Moses do when he goes down the mountain? Moses heads down the mountain, it tells us in verse 15. Went down from the mountain, two tablets of the testimony in his hand. These tablets the Lord has written on both sides, right? They go down. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was on the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. So Moses comes down. Joshua meets him halfway. They head down, and when Moses sees the golden calf, what does he do? He smashes the tablets. Now, I do not believe Moses acts against the Lord here. In fact, I think his action is righteous. Why? Because Moses will do something a little bit later. We'll find out in the journeys. Moses will do something a little bit later that will cause him not to be able to go into the promised land. He acts in anger later. Uh, just to kind of give you guys a heads up, because we won't be there till 2025. But in Numbers, in Numbers, he, he, you remember back when they had the water coming out of the rock and the Lord said, strike the rock and water will come out. He took the judgment. We did this back in Exodus, I think 17 or so. And so he does that. Well, later the people complain again about water and Moses gets mad. But God told him, you only have to strike that rock one time. Now speak to the rock and the water will come. But in Moses' anger, he strikes the rock again and the water comes out, right? And God says, because of that action, you can't go in to the promised land. Because God had already taken the punishment. All you got to do is speak to it now. The, the mercy had already been given. All you got to do is call on it. It will come. Well, ultimately, we see kind of Moses acting in anger there and God judged him. But in here, there's no judgment. So I think the righteousness of Moses' action is seen in the fact, seen in the, 
the power of the law, the seriousness of the crime, that God had given his law to these people and they had broken the whole first half of the law, right? They had created another God before him. They had bowed down to it. They had carved that image. They had not kept what was sacred. They had not trusted in that Sabbath, resting in the God who had given. They had broken them all. And so Moses' action of crashing and breaking the commandments is a testimony to the own sinfulness of the people. It's the right action. It's the right action. And so here Moses breaks it. Then remember what he does with the, the golden calf. We talked about this last week. He takes it. He burns it. He takes the ashes, throws it in the water supply. They have to drink it. They have to drink it. He's eliminating this calf completely, right? And so here, that's where we end up. Moses' action does all of this. That's what we discussed last week. Nothing, nothing is more offensive to God than false worship. And that's exactly what we have here. It says to us that these people, in verse 25, when Moses speaks to this, these people had broken loose from God. They had separated themselves and broken loose from him. They're running wild, in other words. They're not trusting the Lord. They've broken loose from him, and they're running wild. Given the idea, y'all ever had, uh, I remember a vivid night growing up, my neighbor had horses. Y'all ever had horses? And when the horse gets out of the pen, it's not a good night. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I remember our neighbor's horse got out of the pen and got hit by a car. Ooh, is right. And I was an early teenager, and I remember thinking of that through, thinking I never, ever, my dad had a horse, and I, that incident and then like the next week, my dad's horse kicked him in the leg and his leg swelled up and that looked off. I was like, I am not having one of those animals. You know what I'm saying? Not doing it. But that idea of when the animal gets loose out of the pen, it is running wild and all kind of disaster can happen when that's taking place. So the law of God is something to protect us in freedom. And that's how rules work, aren't they? Oftentimes we flip rules around and we think these are holding us back from something. This horse thought that fence was holding him back from something on the other side. He got out and he died, right? He ran into a car. That fence was protecting him from what could kill him on the other side of it. He was protected in that fence. And that's exactly what God's law does for us. It is not something holding us back. It is something that allows us to flourish under God's protection and God's provision. When we get outside of the law, that's where danger happens, right? That's how we set up rules for our kids. Hopefully you don't just make up rules just to be mean. Now some of y'all, you think I got a reason, but y'all know what I'm saying. We set up rules because we don't want them to die. We ask them not to do something because we don't want them to get harmed or to get hurt. They're for them to flourish, not to be harmed. And so that's God's law. And that's what you see here when he says these people are running wild. They are now free out of the law, and now they're in danger. Now they're in danger. They've created a false religion. They've created a counterfeit religion. Their heart is like an idol factory, and they're producing something else to bow down and worship. They made God in their own image. And you say, well, it's a golden cow. They're not really a cow. But what I mean by that is they're making a God that they can tame themselves. 
Not one that, they, that, that, that is out of their control, but one that is in their control, right? One that they can tell what to do. Not that God that can tell them what to do, but one that they can tell what to do. They're creating a God that is in their own control, made in their own image, gratifying themselves. And then, of course, they're mocking God by this. God despises false worship. That's why it says he's jealous He's a jealous God. And when we think of jealousy, we think of jealousy, we think of it always as a bad thing because usually our jealousy bears out of our own selfishness, right? Our jealousy comes because we want something we do not have. But it is fitting and right for God to be jealous of what is true and glorious, his own glory. For it to go anywhere else, for it to go anywhere else is misplaced and false. And his jealousy for his own glory is for our own good. Does that make sense to everybody? His jealousy for his glory is for our best. And so God is saying here, you have broken my commandments. Moses demonstrates that by crashing these laws to the ground and breaking these tablets. What you have done, what you have done is an offense to the God who has saved you out of the bondage of slavery and sin, who has redeemed you, who has provided for you, who has protected you, who is loving on you by telling you what he requires of you, you have gone against the one true and living God. That's what you've done. And so now what we have in the next part of this chapter is them having to deal with that sinful consequences. In fact, remember I said this is like, there's a lot of parallels in this passage to Genesis chapter 3. The, the fall in the garden of Adam and Eve. There's a lot of parallels happening here in, Gen in Exodus 32 of the fall of Israel here after having been come out in God's presence. There's a lot of parallels that's going on. So now what are the consequences of those sins? First, those sins that they commit have to be confronted. We've already seen this. Confronted, They've broken the law of God. We've got to confront that. Moses breaks the law as a testimony to it. Notice what, and just to kind of bring this in and kind of make makes a little bit of sense, if you remember what James said, James says, uh, if, you, or if you really, this is chapter 2, I believe, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Do y'all see what James is saying? You can keep all of it, but if you fail at one point, you're a lawbreaker. Does that make sense to everybody? You failed at all of it. We all know how this works. It's like if something's dirty, you know, if something you say something's clean, you got a clean fork, but if you look at that fork and there's a spot on it, are you going to use it? You know what I'm saying? That one spot makes the whole thing where you got to wash it again. You got to throw it away. You got to do something else with it because you, you recognize here, as James said, if you break one law, then you are a criminal. That's what you are. And so ultimately that's what we see here. They've broken the law of God. Therefore they're responsible before God for all of it. That has to be confronted. Moses testifies to this by, by breaking, destroying confronting them with the law and destroying the law as a testimony to what has happened. 
And so then, of course, what does he do next? Moses takes the calf and he destroys it. Moses wants to make sure not only has the law been broken, but that idol has to be destroyed as well. This testimony for Moses, by the way, has a New Testament principle. Again, most of this does. We oftentimes say the Old Testament, New Testament, totally different, but not really. Listen, I mean, listen to what this is saying. This is saying that Moses takes the idol that they're bowing down to and he burns it. He takes it, the, the, the ashes of it. He throws it in their water supply. He makes them drink it. We saw the symbolism of that last week. But think about what happens when they drink it. Then they have to expel it. What Moses is making sure of is that idol will never come back together and come right here, right? He's not just cutting it in half and throwing it in a pile over here. He's not just melting it down and making some more bangles and some more jewelry and some more stuff for them. He's, he's not... <clears throat> turning that calf into anything else. He is totally and completely getting rid of it. Jesus has a principle when he talks about sin. And he uses language that is very, very uh, extreme seeming, but he does that for a reason. Y'all, anybody know what a hyperbole is? Y'all, anybody know what a hyperbole is? Huh? Y'all got that down? Is it, has it been too long? It's just been too long. You know what I'm saying? Don't know. A hyperbole is an extreme exaggeration to prove a point, right? And so we'll use language, and I'm telling y'all, big words get you A's. I don't know if y'all are still getting graded, but the bigger words you can use, the smarter people think you are. And so hyperbole is a good one. It's plus it's just fun to say. And so also you can use like hyperbolic language. Y'all ever heard something like that? That's, that's how you're, you're using extreme exaggeration. Our kids do this all the time. They don't even know what they're doing, but they're trying to prove some point by using extreme exaggeration. And so Jesus does the same thing when he talks about sin. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do with it? Gouge it out. If your hand's causing you to sin, what do you do with your hand? Cut it off. Now, it's important, right, in, 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 in understanding and interpreting Scripture, you have to understand languages, how language is used, right? Because if you don't understand how language is used, then oftentimes you'll make a mistake of an improper in interpretation. Because God, the, the New Testament is using language and it's using figures of speech for us. And so this is hyperbolic language. This doesn't mean literally that you cut your hand off. And it doesn't mean literally that you gouge your eye. It's using an extreme exaggeration to let you know that whatever in your life is causing you to sin, then you must go to whatever extreme measure you can possibly go to get it out of your life, right? To end it. You can't let it stay there. You can't let it be there. You've got to get rid of it. And he's using that hyperbolic language to say, if something in your life is causing you to sin, get it out of there. Get it out of there. It's dangerous. That's exactly what Moses does when he takes his calf and he melts it down and he takes the ashes, puts it in the water and makes them drink it. He's saying, it's over. No way you're going to pull this calf back out. You know what I'm saying? No way this is coming back. We're going to end. We're not just throwing this in a junk pile. We're not just melting it down because if you melt it down into something else, you can melt it down again and make it a cow. We're not doing any of that. We're going to get rid of this sin. We're going to get rid of it. In our life, that can be done in any number of ways. If something's causing you to sin, you get it out of your house. You get it out of your rhythms. You take it out of your life, right? 
If, there, if it's something that you can't live without uh, and it's causing you to sin, then you put some accountability in place. So as you can't do it without other people knowing, right? You can't do something without other. So whatever it is, you take measures to not fall into that temptation and sin again. That's Jesus' point. That's what Moses is playing out right here. We're not going to let this golden calf come back. We're not doing it. So he shows the extreme nature in confronting it by breaking the tablets and letting them know you have broken God's law. And then he takes that sinful thing and he ends it. No more. That's not coming back. When you confront sin, this has to be done. Both of these things have to be true. It has to be confronted over against God's commandments and there has to be measures taken so you won't fall. They won't fall into that sin anymore. Do what you can to take it out of your life. Moses does that first. Now, he's going to go to the next part. He's going to start looking for some answers. And what is our tendency when sin is confronted? We're going to shift some blame, right? That's what, that's what Adam did. Who did this and what did Adam say? <laughs> that woman you made me, God. Was Adam blaming the woman or was he blaming God? The answer is yes. The woman you made me. That's who did it. Ultimately, our first action whenever we're caught in sinfulness is not to accept responsibility, but shift responsibility. Shift responsibility. It's the age-old story, but notice what happens. I mean, listen to this. And Moses comes to Aaron. What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? What happened? Moses, I think, is legitimately asking, Aaron, what's going on? Did they beat you up? Did they, like, threaten your life? What did they do to you, man? How did this happen? How could you ever let this go on? Obviously, something bad happened here that you would allow this. They threatened you. They took away some, you know, they didn't let you have any quail or manna for the day. What is it? What's going on, man? And what, is, what does Aaron do? I mean, we know Aaron just kind of capitulated to the whole thing. But verse 22, Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. Don't you get mad at me. You know the people. You know they're set on evil. He's playing off what's happened before. He's playing off how they grumbled in the wilderness. He's playing off how they complained about food. He's playing off how God had left them and how the people had always been contentious. And Aaron's like, come on, Moses. You know how these people are. And you can't really play that card for Moses because, yeah, Moses knows how they are. And he's dealt with it. He's handled it, right? So Aaron, first of all, kind of... Plays on Moses. Moses, come on, you know. And then who's he blame? He, very next, it becomes clear. For they said to me, make us gods who shall be before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we did not know what has become of him. That's how evil they are. They said, let's make gods. So Aaron shifts the blame, not my fault. The people did it. You know, you know what it is. It's not my fault. The people did it. Aaron shifts blame. And he shifts the blame over to the people. And he shifts the blame then even more. Verse 24. Here comes the crazy part. Y'all know those videos? I love those videos. In fact, we got a great video of my youngest son, Patton, who was playing with the sugar. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And the sugar was all over the floor. Like the whole kitchen's covered in sugar. And we start talking to Patton on the video. And what does Patton say? I don't know what you're talking about, Mom. Who did this? Got no idea. 
what do you, what, who did what? What do you, what, what, I mean, what, what, what are we doing? He's like two. He's already shifting to blame. He's already, do, it's like those videos, you know, where the kids got chocolate all over their face and you're like, did you eat the chocolate? No, ma'am. I didn't do it. You know, and we laugh. But how funny is that that kids, even at the age, know that, right? They even know how to shift blame and they know how to deny when they're in trouble. And that's exactly what does Aaron say next is fascinating to me. Here's a grown man, right? A grown man who's got responsibilities. He's already blamed the people. He's already done all this other stuff. And what does he say next? Either way, the people made me do it. And when I threw it in the fire, this cow just came out. Aaron goes from blaming the people to blaming the fire. You know what I'm saying? It's like I threw this thing in the fire. And listen, I'm not kidding. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. Aaron is shifting the blame from the people to the fire, but what's ultimately is anybody but himself. Anybody but himself. And what we learn is in scripture, this is never the way to handle sin. When sin's confronted, we must take ownership of sin. We must confess that sin or we're going to try to conceal it. Really, that's the only two options. Conceal it and try to hide it, blame somebody else, or confess it. Y'all know how silly it was, how utterly silly it was for Aaron and uh, Aaron, Adam and Eve to dive behind a tree, sew up some leaves, and try to cover themselves. They're talking about the God who made them, right? He's talking about the God who made that tree. And you think you're going to hide behind a tree? That's just utter silliness. And it's the same thing for Aaron. How silly is it for you to try to conceal your own sinfulness and your own actions in this? And I want you guys to know before we look at Adam and Eve and when we look at Aaron at this, I want you to know it is utterly silly for any one of us in this room to try to conceal our sin from God. It's silliness. He sees all and he knows all. So it doesn't matter if you sow designer fig leaves and try to cover up your sinfulness. You're still a sinner and God knows it. So you either try to conceal it or you try to confess, or you got to confess it. Great confession in scripture. Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51 is an example for us of coming to grips with our sinfulness and confessing it before God. We know that's the psalm that Adam, goodness, I got too many people in my head. David prays after being confronted by Nathan the prophet with his sin with Bathsheba. And when he's confronted and finally realized, remember, he tried to conceal it too, remember? He, was, he sinned with Bathsheba. He tried to conceal it by sending, sending Uriah off to war and letting him die, but he kept winning. And then he concealed it even more so by having the men back up so Uriah would die, right? Ultimately, he tried to conceal his sin by killing the very one he had sinned against. And so ultimately, he's finally confronted with it. And we see there in Psalm 51, like verse 4, where he sees it. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, and against you and you only have I sinned. So he says, purge me with hyssop in verse 7, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He's ultimately saying that I am dirty and I am unclean before you. I have sinned against you. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When we recognize that it is God who we sin against, ultimately and finally, then we call on God who can cleanse us and wash us. Either we're going to conceal it or we're going to confess it. And the only way it can be wiped away is to confess it before the God who can wipe it away. And so ultimately we see the same thing in Proverbs chapter 28. A good proverb to remember. Proverbs chapter 28, I think it's verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Whenever Aaron is confronted, he shifts the blame and he seeks to conceal his own sinfulness before God. Moses is going to point out that foolishness. When he says, and, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Who is on the Lord's side? Moses says. Moses is going to be clear. What has happened here? is a breaking of God's law, a sin against God. Moses, at this point, there in verse, what number is that? 25, 26, gives the people an opportunity to repent. That's what that is. Moses preaches to them and says, okay, who's on the Lord's side? And what that ultimately means is, are you going to follow the God of Israel who has saved us and redeemed us? Are you going to follow this golden calf idol thing that you wanted to do? Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Moses gives an altar call, right? Who is it? And then from that, we have a really tough passage. All the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. At this time, our best estimate, 3,000 3, men would have been about a half a percent of how many had come out of Egypt and were here. About a half a percent, 3,000 men. The clear statement in here is when Moses calls them to come to this side, right? Come to me. The people of God come to him and turn away except for these 3,000. 
except for these ones who believe they were right in this whole process and all this stuff. And so when he does that, he calls the, the priests, the, the people of Levi, if you will, to come forward and do your duty. Why? Because it was the priest's duty to clear them out of the people. And this is a hard passage for us. It's a tough scene, especially in our modern-day sensibilities, this idea. And this is one of the reasons why the Old Testament starts getting hard for us to, to, to preach or to teach. But understand the import of this passage is very important for us today. Very important. It speaks to the serious nature of sin. And when I say the serious nature of sin, it's what, what the old uh, saints used to call the sinfulness of sin. It speaks to how dangerous this is. Sin is life and death. It's hard for us to comprehend that because we spend our whole life trying to justify every little white lie. And we spend our whole life trying to justify our own desires, our own selfishness, our own sick sinfulness. In knowledge. We spend our whole life trying to justify it and we beat ourselves down to the point that our heart gets hardened to our own sinfulness. What the scriptures teach us is that every single little sin carries with it the weight of death. The judgment of death. Every single one of them. And just as James says, if you break one, you've broken the whole law. You are guilty before God. And every single one of them says to us, for the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6. All of them. And so what happens here when these people don't confess and come back to God, what happens here? As the Lord says, you got to get rid of them because if you don't watch out down the road, what are they going to do? They're going to bring another idol. They're going to bring more into the camp. And next time it may not be 3,000. Next time it may be 30,000. And they're going to lead more people astray. And they're going to destroy the name of God amongst these people. If you don't get rid of them, they will destroy you. And there's an old saying that is true today as it's ever been. If you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. As Romans 8 says, we've been given the spirit within us if we believe in the Lord Jesus and we put to death the deeds of the flesh. The old King James says we mortify it. That's a good word too. We mortify the deeds of the flesh. We put them to death. And so what happens here in our passage is a picture of that very thing. God is showing the seriousness of sin. Y'all know what it means to be a Christian. People always ask me, what, you know, boil down Christianity. I try to do that sometimes for people. I got my little points. My points are simple. Love Jesus. Y'all got that? Everybody got that? Love Jesus? That's a good one. Love Jesus. I mean, Jesus is, is Christianity's found there. Salvation is found in him. Love Jesus. But the other side of that coin, and what I mean is like two sides of the same coin, like breathing in and breathing out, you can't have one without the other. If you say you love Jesus, then you are also saying at the exact same time that you hate sin. Does everybody get what I'm saying? Those two things go together. You can't say you love Jesus and at the same time love sin. That's the whole point of 1 John. You say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar, he says. 
You can't say you love God and you love sin at the same time. Because sin puts us to death and Jesus died for our sins, right? And so ultimately we have to recognize if we love Jesus, then we're going to hate the very sin that made him go to the cross. We're going to hate the very thing that separated us out from him. We're going to hate the very thing that sends people to death eternally. We're going to hate it because it's serious. And so here we see the seriousness of it. And it's confronted. Who's on the Lord's side? And those who are on the Lord's side come to him. And in this coming to him, they are turning away from that idol, admitting that it was wrong, showing that they should have never done it. And they're turning back to God. He gives them an opportunity for repentance. And when they don't, they face death. They face death. And in verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, because now it's been cleared out, those 3,000 have been dealt with. So for those that remain, it's not quite going back to the way it was. Because anytime sinfulness comes in, right, you never can return to where you were before. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It, I, I've seen marriages go through some crazy stuff. I've seen, I've seen husbands cheat on their wives in terrible ways. And I've seen God's grace be incredible and how they come back together and they don't separate out. They don't go through a divorce, but they forgive one another. They care for one another and their marriage makes it through such a difficulty. I've seen that before. I've seen the other side, but I've seen that. And it's always a beautiful testimony. But you know what? No matter what may happen, that marriage is not going to be the same on the other side of that than it was before. There's going to be consequences for the rest of your life because of those actions that you have to deal with. And that's the same thing you see here in the wilderness. This action of the golden calf, God has dealt with the sin. Now we're back together, but it's not going to be quite the same. There's still going to be consequences you have to live with. One, there's going to have to be atonement made. And Moses says, Moses says, perhaps I can make atonement for sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Don't hold it against them, Moses says. Come to me, blot me out. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people... Excuse me, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. God says, I'm not going to blot them out. I will if they sin against me. But now it's time for you to go. It's time for you to leave Sinai and go. It's time for you to depart and go up. You see in chapter 33, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. At first, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Like, okay, we're good. But let's notice a few things here. One, verse 35 of chapter 32. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. 
it doesn't tell us that this plague, we'll have some other plagues that come whenever they sin against God or in the wilderness and that whole generation dies out. It doesn't tell us that this plague kills anybody right immediately, right? But what it does seem to indicate is that there will be a plague or sickness or whatever that may mean amongst the people even as they go. Something they're going to have to deal with. Sin brings that. Sin brings consequences that you're going to have to deal with and you're going to have to live with when you do it. That necessarily happens. That's a consequence of their sin. But notice an even graver consequence. He says, he tells them to go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you, and behold, who will go? My angel shall go before you. It says a little bit later, an angel, in chapter 33, verse 2, an angel will go before you. Y'all notice anything about that? Who went before him before? God did. Now he says, y'all go ahead and go. I'll send an angel in front of you to get you there. And notice what he also says. He doesn't say, my people go. He says, take the people. Y'all go ahead and go, and I'll send an angel in front of you. Y'all see what God's doing? God is saying, y'all go without me. You think you can make it? Y'all go without me. You want to get that land of milk and honey? Y'all go without me. I want y'all to know something real clear, I think, in Scripture. Heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there. Y'all understand what I mean? We talk about heaven. We talk about it like, look at the streets of gold. I can't wait to see that. I want to see what my mansion looks like. Y'all know what I'm saying? Some of y'all probably imagining something. God's like, y'all are dumb. But y'all can do it. You want to see what that looks like? I want to see all this. Hey, I want to go ahead and tell y'all this because I think it's going to be good. But let me go ahead and say something else. And y'all don't get mad at me. When you are thinking about heaven, I think it is right and proper for us to think about who's gone on before us. Right? Surely it is. Allison can tell you that. Her sister died at 28. Suddenly. I'm, I, it is right for us to think one day we'll see them again. But if you think Hear me when I say it. Now, y'all can get mad if you want to. I'm just going off my own, my own thought here. If you think seeing her would be more important than seeing Christ, then you've missed out the whole understanding of what this is. Heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there. And here he says, y'all go ahead and go to that land flowing with milk and honey. I'm not going with you. Moses realized how disastrous that is. He realizes it immediately. Go up to the land flowing milk and honey, verse 3, chapter 33. But I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Nothing to celebrate. They put on no ornaments, nothing to get dressed up for, nothing to... In other words, it's almost like they're saying, we got no purpose now, right? The reason you get up and you get fancied up and you take a shower every day and you look nice is because you got a reason to live. You got a purpose to go out. You got something to be proud of, to be thankful for. You got something to rejoice in. That's why you do all this. Here they're saying, we're not even, we're not even caring. We're not even going to put on decoration. We're not even going to get prepared to go into the Holy Land. We're not even getting ready anymore. This is disastrous. 
Getting the land flowing with milk and honey without God there is disastrous. Y'all hear what I'm saying? And anybody, this is I think what Paul says, anybody that preaches another Christ should be anathema, he says. Because the danger we would have is me standing up before you acting like Aaron and selling you on a God that's not the God of Scripture but made in your image, that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable, that makes you feel better about yourself, and a reward that's coming that you think you're in line for but you won't get, right? And we can do that. In fact, in the New Testament, they say people are doing that all over the place. It's called tickling of the ears, and they've gone off to follow others because they tickle their ears. They tickle their ears. And they don't mention passages like 3,000 of them were slaughtered because of sin. Because that doesn't tickle the ears. And what we find here is for us to recognize that the greatest gift we can ever have is Christ Jesus himself. God is the gospel. God's not a ticket to get into the show. Y'all see what I'm saying? Jesus isn't like the past that gets you into the party. He is the reward. He is life and salvation. And the most disastrous thing he could ever say to you in your life, go on ahead without me. You don't need me, I can see. And so for us, before we go any further in this, and we'll look at it next week, for us the desire would be every day what Moses will say next week. If your presence, chapter 33, verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. The disastrous idea that they could go on to the promised land without God. Moses says, if you ain't going, I ain't going. All of this scene gets Moses and the people of God to a place to where they realize they are desperate for him. It's John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. They're desperate for him. And I want y'all to know, and I mean this with all of my heart, God wants us every single day to get to a place where we are desperate for him. Desperate for him. To where we recognize, as the psalmist says, whom do I have in heaven but you, O Lord? Where else do I look or do I turn? You are my light and my salvation. You are the rock by which I stand upon. You are my Shelter in the midst of the storm. You are the wings by which I fly and I go into your presence every single day. You are everything. My life, my breath, my everything. The scene here in Exodus 32 and 33 is teaching the people, you are desperate for me. And the glories of the promised land and the glories of heaven 
are nothing if God's not with you there. He's the gospel himself. He's the reward. And so may we too be a people who recognizes the sinfulness of our sin, our desperate need of God to forgive us our sins, and our desperate need for him to march with us, to be with us, and for us to be in his presence. Let's pray together. Father, help us to follow hard after you, God, with everything we got, recognizing and realizing that we are desperate for you. Thank you, Lord, for Christ. And may we look to Christ for all things, for apart from him we can do nothing. In Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday. Minor prophets, you all jump in. Wear your baseball uniforms. <laughs>